Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It is I, your host, Cindy Howes. Thanks for listening. Okay, yes, I cried when I interviewed Rachel Bayman. Her writing is stirring and brutal, and then when you read about the inspiration behind the songs on her new album, Cycles, it's like automatic waterworks for me. From frank observations of her grandparents' loss of agency when aging, to women reckoning with the heaviness and grief of motherhood. I am into the emotion of these songs. Rachel came to songwriting after she had spent her youth mastering the fiddle. She actually kept her school life separate from her fiddle life, where she would pal around with other kids at fiddle contests and also play in jams with people four times her age. She attended Vanderbilt in Nashville for an anthropology degree where she centered a lot of her research papers on the fiddle. She left Nashville to study in Edinburgh and took full advantage of the music community she found. That would also set her up to seek out a music community in Nashville upon her return. Rachel is known for her solo career and for her, quote, nerdy fiddle duo, Ten String Symphony, with fiddle player Christian Settlemeyer. The band deconstructs traditional forms and incorporates a lot of original elements. She's three albums deep into her solo work, the latest being produced by Liv Halley of the Australian indie band OPEP. For Cycles, she went to Melbourne to record with Liv to get into Liv's scene. Rachel says, I kind of had this theory that if you want a specific sound, go to the place, use the studio, use the person, use the gear, get into the vibe of the place. The album, while it's rooted in her folk sound, has a grittier and poppier edge that I find irresistible. It's on the top of my list for 2021 so far. Also, she gives us the details on her super cute house and what it means to have a place like that to call home. Lots of leaking eyes, also known as crying, for Rachel Bayman. We'll take a listen to the title track from her new album, Cycles, and then we'll get into our conversation with Rachel Bayman on Basic Folk. I will come to your door with all the things I've seen before. Watch you struggle for your glory, breathing life into the fury. Motherhood isn't kind, a constant race against the time from Rachel, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really love your new record. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. Let's um, dig into your whole entire life. Okay. (laughs) Sounds good. I'm ready. Okay. So you grew up without religion, but your parents would take you to meetings at the Ethical Humanist Society of Greater Chicago, which... I don't know what that is, but it sounds intense. So what were those meetings like for you, and how did the early exposure to that environment impact you? Wow. Well, um, those meetings were like kind of kumbaya vibes and very sort of hippy-dippy, crunchy take on religion, but it wasn't – it was a very – low-key kind of crowd so it was very uh I don't know it's kind of like stuffy and 
boring as a kid, I would say. Mm. <laughs> but I got put in like the Sunday school room, which was basically just, it was not as much of a meeting. It was more of just like your average Sunday school class that one might expect, except for there was no kind of talk of God or, or Jesus or any sort of religious thing. It was just like, how do we be nice to people? That was kind of the vibe. So how to do your taxes, <laughs> how to write a check. Oh, I wish. I mean, that would have been yeah. great. <laughs> right. No, I think it was, um, you know, my parents come from mixed backgrounds. So my dad is, his dad was Jewish. His mom was Christian, but they, she kind of converted and they moved to Israel. So he kind of grew up very Jewish ethnically. And my mom kind of grew up vaguely Christian, but not super religious. And he felt really strongly that he, that we should not go to any kind of church. So even like the Unitarian Universalist church, which was like, I actually had friends that went there and I was like, that seems way more normal. Like, can we just go there? And mm. he was like, no, that's still like, that's still Christian, you know? So he's very much like, he, he didn't want us to have that kind of like dominating Christian upbringing of the U.S. Like he felt kind of oppressed by that, I think. So, so this was kind of his answer. And my mom was like, well, that's fine with me. She wasn't particularly religious. And um, this was kind of their happy medium as it was for a lot of people, I think, coming from kind of mixed families and a lot of people that had had negative experiences with religion as well. You were kind of accidentally introduced to fiddle music as a young kid. Were you four years old Mm -hmm. when you were starting? You wanted to play an instrument and you guys found, your family found someone who was willing to teach you. And it was Mike Casey. Yeah. um, Who actually secretly was into the folk and traditional folk fiddle tunes. Uh, um, So what do you remember about first connecting with the instrument, how Mike maybe helped you connect with it and what made you want to put so much of yourself into the fiddle? Well, yeah, that's, it's an interesting thing because, um, I don't think that I was intentionally trying to play fiddle music, but like he, Mike really was much more a fiddle player than a classical violinist. And, um, he really introduced me to that whole community. And especially in my hometown, there was a little jam circle of people that were into folk and fiddle tunes. And my parents met at a contra dance in New England and they were very, familiar with the concept of fiddle music, which I think was really cool because they knew what it was and they were like, oh, fiddle is cool. Like you should do that. (laughs) Um, So when I was a kid, I was just playing tunes. And I think my first focus was just on, you know, how do I play this instrument? And then it wasn't until I heard, I went to this um, camp outside of Nashville and I heard, um, you know, Bruce Molsky and, Aubrey Haney and Andy Lefkowitz and Brittany Haas. And I heard all this incredible, like, fiddle music from all these, like, deep, deep, rich traditions. And that's what I like. Those are like a bunch of Bruce Springsteens of fiddle. (laughs) Yeah. That you just mentioned. And um, I really fell in love with it then. And and that was kind of when it became more about an an art form for me and less about just learning how to to play the instrument. You know, I, I always enjoyed playing the instrument, you know, but I was just doing it like I went to gymnastics class or, you know, it was just like a thing that I did. And then Mm. when I was like 14 or so, that's when I really kind of fell in love with it and started really digging in more to music in general and, you know, finding artists that I love. So you you were seeing Bruce Molsky and Brittany Haas play at these camps. What was it about their like presentation or, because I've heard like fiddle players talk about being really drawn to folk and fiddle because of the community that's around it? Was that a thing for you? I think it was to some extent. I mean, definitely I, you know, I went to public school in Chicago and I didn't have, you know, it, it wasn't something that I like talked about with my friends at school. Like that, it was kind of like a completely different part of my life because nobody at school had any idea what I was, you know, they didn't know anything about fiddle music, nor were they interested. Like we were listening to hip hop and R&B and like, so, you know, I did I did my normal kid stuff and then I had this kind of secret part of my life where I would go to these fiddle camps and you know, I did meet people my age that I think had similar musical interests. So that was cool, but in terms of the community like for me in my day-to-day, it was actually a very weird community because it was like all these old mm. guys 
at the, uh, <laughs> at the farmer's market, you know, like it wasn't my peers. So, um, I do think it was largely just about the music, but, um, also, I think I'm like a culture geek. Like I'm really, really interested in deeply understanding different cultures. And so it's it's just one way that you can kind of dig in more to the human experience. Like I ended up majoring in anthropology and I think that's like not an accident. Like it's kind of a, the same thing to me. So mm. I think that's more what it was about for me. Um, but the Midwest where I grew up, like the fiddle style that's in rural Illinois is quite it's quite bare bones and like stripped down and straightforward. And the styles I was hearing from these other regions were really different, like more syncopation, more interesting variety. So I think that's kind of what made the spark for me. Your answer to that question has opened up so many other questions, particularly like your separate lives, like your fiddle life separate from your school life. I can totally relate to that. When I was a kid, I was in 4-H, and I lived in, like, a suburban town, like, 20 miles south of Boston. So okay. it was, like, very much, like, a weird thing that you just, like, well, that's just, like, not what I talk about when I'm yes, at school. Exactly. it's totally weird. Um, but do, do you see any, like, lasting impacts from that experience of, like, having two separate experiences as a kid? Lasting impacts. I mean, I guess it definitely... Um made me excited to move to Nashville and like try to find a community of people that I feel like were kind of interested in the same things as me. Um, It's kind of like they're out there. I mean, I was like a huge nerd and I didn't have a ton of friends, but you know, I had my little circle and that was enough. Like I had my two best friends and we just, yeah, I I would say I had like a very uh, chill and minimal high school experience. It was, it was uh, totally fine though. And then when I went to college, that was like the most outsider that I've ever been because I went to Vanderbilt and it was very like fancy and like Greek and none of my values. (laughs) And I wasn't, Mm. I wasn't in a sorority or anything. And so I think like, Maybe oh, I, that's what you mean when you say Greek. I'm yeah. Like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Greek. And I just like, I didn't, I hated everything about the social scene there. So I just like made myself an outsider. And um, oh, maybe man. Rachel, you and I are friends. Yeah, of course we are. You have a podcast that called is... Basic Folk. <laughs> oh my God. I also did not relate to that culture at all. No, I mean, um, it's a terrible culture. Why would you relate to it? <laughs> be weird if you did. I agree, but nobody else agrees Some, with me. <laughs> Something else I think that came up for you when you moved to Nashville was um, being around people who came from very strong religious backgrounds. Um, what did you make of that as somebody who did not have that growing up? Yeah, I think it was actually really good for me to have a little bit more experience with that. I think that, you know, growing up where I did, it was quite a liberal bubble and it was very, you know, ethnically, racially, economically diverse, which I'm really grateful for, but it was not very like politically diverse. (laughs) So, which was nice at the time, but it was also like really good for me to understand that that was not actually the entirety of the country and that people did have these really strong positive attachments to religion, which I didn't really understand, I don't think. Weird, huh? Where I did. Yeah, and like it has been really good to kind of understand that more deeply. And I think that just deciding that you think something because it's the only thing that you've ever experienced doesn't make you a very effective empathizer, communicator, or, Mm. you know, student of human experience. So I really appreciated that opportunity to kind of see another side of the country and another way that people grew up despite like not really understanding and relating to it. So I do think that when I kind of circled back to have, it's like I grew up having all the opinions, but it was just what I knew and what I was told. And then I had my phase of kind of trying to understand what I actually thought outside of, you know, what I was brought up with. And when I circled back with my own opinions again, I think I had a had a much more nuanced understanding of like what all the different, you know, cultures and upbringings that exist, especially in the American South, which is a complex but really amazing place. Hmm. 
In the same topic, how did your awareness to being a woman changed when you moved to Nashville? Well, it changed a lot, actually. I think that, you know, I went to a very progressive public high school and I had, you know, there was tons of amazing female role models. And I, I really didn't think about my gender very much as in terms of my career possibilities or, you know, what I should or could do in school. Like it really wasn't, I didn't feel the weight of that, I think. But in Nashville, I did. And first at Vanderbilt, because the, I feel like that at least when I was there, the the culture for women was so toxic. It was like a lot of pressure to be perfect in your appearance, uh, perfect in your classes and kind of be all things. And that was like something that the women took pride in at Vanderbilt. And I found kind of horrifying, but, um, and it was so gendered too. like the whole Greek system is so gendered, you know, so binary. So there was like a very specific role that each gender was supposed to play, which I found really weird. I also really struggled with the person that was, uh, supposed to be mentoring me on fiddle and the relationship there was a little bit oppressive I think for women and then when I started playing gigs you know that's like a whole nother can of worms so I definitely had those first Mm -hmm. experiences of like showing up for a pop country gig and you know being told like oh well like you need to wear a lipstick and polish your boots and like have this specific look um, because you're kind of being hired for the appearance rather than the actual musical part of it and um and then just having the experience of trying to kind of like be a presence in a in a jam where I was the only female and like feeling really intimidated and not welcomed into the kind of like boys scene so I think those things came later for me and I really didn't realize that it was gonna be such a an issue in my life you know it's like yeah, which you like, have to like reverse engineer the situation well that, that yeah. anthropology degree I helped a lot I was so <laughs> I was so naive you know like I was so naive in high school because I just I was in such a good place and I didn't know that the rest of the world wasn't like that you know so mm-hmm. it was definitely a little bit of a wake-up call I would say okay so uh, in talking about that anthropology degree, you were still playing fiddle in college and you would often write papers about it. You got research grants to like yeah. basically just like dive in. Um, how did approaching the music from that um, academic angle help you better understand it? That's a really good question. I mean, I think with fiddle music, if you're, you know, depending on how you want to be a fiddle player, a lot of it is broader than just the music. I mean, I think that the culture surrounding it is such a big part of the music. And so it's like when you are a snobby, trained musician and you think that the only thing that matters is being able to improvise the most quarterly educated solo, which I was never that good at that. So I don't, I wouldn't say I was that person, but like you meet those people and, um, you could play them a recording of a really old fiddle tune and to them it's going to sound terrible because it's scratchy, it's out of tune, it might be, you know, a little out of time. And, like, it's hard, I think, to understand from that perspective why that music would be important or meaningful. So being able to understand kind of, like, the history and development of a style of music and what you want to pull from the past uh, to add interest and add roots to your sound versus what you want to make your own. I mean, I think you have to kind of take a deep dive and that applies to any style of music, like regardless of, you know, whether it's old time fiddle or rock and roll or classical, like I think it, it does apply to all those styles. It's just that a lot of people don't realize that except in the fiddle world, everyone's like really into that. So, um, Yeah, I think it just being a student of culture, like you, you, there's so much to be gained from understanding like past musicians and that you can't understand all of it just based on technical prowess, if that makes sense. So 
So I want to talk about your nerdy fiddle duo, Ten String Symphony with yes. Christian Settlemeyer. And it's uh, here's here's the thesis of the band. The band de- deconstructs traditional forms and incorporates a lot of original elements. In hearing you describe Ten String Symphony as a nerdy fiddle duo, it wants I want to know like what it's been like for you to, to get very nerdy about the fiddle with other people, um, like Christian and also probably George, your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and how has like the process of deconstructing tradition felt for you as a younger player? Well, I think Christian and I kind of made that band at a really formative time for both of us. Like we were both kind of trying to figure out what our personal musical styles were because we were both at a point in our careers where we were just trying to like technically get so much better and learn how to play. Like for me, it was learning how to improvise, learning how to interact with songs and like just get really technically good at the fiddle. And for him, I think it was learning about traditional styles of fiddle because he kind of came from a classical and rock background and he really was like behind on that kind of stuff. Like he didn't have that experience of going to the camps and workshops as a kid. And so I think he always felt really like he was playing catch up on the kind of like, oh, what are the tunes that I should know? And, you know, what are the like Mm. old time um, sensibilities that I kind of missed out on? And so there was a lot of things that we were learning from each other in that sense. And then in that like frantic desire to be good enough to be professionals that I think everyone feels like in their early 20s and trying to just like, you know, do in my mind what I felt like I needed to do to like be the musician that I wanted to be. And during that time, like by accident, almost we like kind of found our own styles and developed our own sound as a band. And a lot of that was just about being really aggressively risky with our harmonic decisions and our like deconstruction decisions for the band. And it came naturally because we were trying to do this band with just fiddles. So there wasn't a lot of options. Like it, it kind of had to be that way. And that was really Mm -hmm. fun for us. Um, So I think it was a combination of just being very open to risk taking and not knowing what we were doing that led us down these fun avenues. (laughs) And um, Mm -hmm. it was a good, it was a a really cool project for me in terms of developing songwriting style, um, thinking about, arranging songs, arranging, um, you know, band movements and arcs of songs and, and what I wanted to say. And that, like, because there was just the two of us, we had, someone had to write songs, someone had to sing them. So we both became front people, you know, and that was really good. That was a really good exercise. Is that when you first started singing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is when I first started singing. And it's also when I first started writing songs kind of out of necessity. I mean, we were both we would go downtown and busk sometimes just because we were like, well, we're just playing tunes around the house all the time. Might as well just like go make money while we do it. And it would be so loud downtown. And I'd be like, let's just like yell a fiddle tune. And then people, you know, like let's yell an old time song. People will pay attention to us. So I would play my fiddle and start singing, you know, like Red Rocky Chair, or like Fly Around My Pretty Little Mess, you know, like those like classic catchy tunes that people would be like, yeah, it's so awesome. Cause like you're singing and playing the fiddle at the same time. And that's kind of how we led us down that that path of trying to do more of that and then getting really artsy about it. Mm. I've heard you talk about like coming into your songwriting, but can you talk about coming into your singing? You've such a yeah. really cool voice. It's like hard for me to believe that you like started singing so late. Oh, wow. Thank you. Well, I feel really um, untrained as a singer. So it's kind of a, I guess it's just been a trial and error process. I think I think that my singing is very much rooted in old time singing. It's very much about projecting and over the fiddle. Cause I think I did that, had to kind of yell over the fiddle so long. So I ended up being a pretty loud singer <laughs> and, um, you know, there's like, there's so many different singing styles based on genre, uh, which I learned like when I was in college. So I started 10 string symphony when I was still in college and, um, my last year or so, I took lessons um, with an amazing teacher at Vanderbilt named Liz Johnson, and she was a jazz singer. Mm-hmm. And it was my first experience ever with singing lessons. Like, I really had no idea what I was doing, but I was like, I, you know, I have this opportunity while I'm in school. I should just try to get some lessons from her. And she, what she really taught me was um, 
to sing in the way that I speak, like to really be vulnerable and myself as a singer the same way that I would while I was speaking. Because I think if you're not a trained singer, you kind of try to like, you you think you have to kind of switch your brain to singing and you come out with this like weird voice that isn't really related to the way that you speak. A lot of it's like using your falsetto or whatever. And uh, Mm -hmm. she was like a jazz singer, which is kind of the closest technical uh, singing to like pop or, you know, popular music. I don't mean like pop singing, but, you know, anything that's not classical or opera, basically. Or secular. Or secular. It's coming from like a jazz singing technique perspective. But the funny thing is that she would have me try to sing these jazz standards and I seriously could not sing these melodies because they just made no like I'm so I was so untrained at jazz at that point I mean I'm still not trained in jazz at all but I like feel like I understand it quarterly a little bit more but at the time like old-time melodies are so straightforward and so like it's like one of the three notes in the chord is Mm. going to be the note you're singing there's no because everybody's everybody has to sing them yeah they're folk songs you know like they're supposed yeah and I just like (laughs) I wasn't playing jazz on the fiddle either. So the melody is just like, I seriously could not sing these songs. So it's I like another language. Yeah. Another language, <laughs> and yeah. I think, I think I was like so far outside of her realm of understanding that she didn't even really know how to like explain to me how to sing these melodies. And, um, so I feel like I was like the worst voice, voice student, but at the <laughs> same time, I learned so much. I mean, I really feel like that helped me find, my voice so much and then the rest of it was just trial and error with Mm. recording live shows I mean recording is really great for singing because there's no hiding and you do you have to hear it so many times and Mm -hmm. now especially like during during the pandemic you start recording everything because everything is either a video or a live stream or you know there was no like performance that disappeared ever so Mm -hmm. Um, I got very in tune with <laughs> what I sound like on every yeah. syllable of every song. So that's a good way to learn. Um, so, yeah, I want to hear about your um, journey into songwriting. You were starting to, like, hang out with a lot of songwriters in Nashville, and mm-hmm. it was just kind of like this infectious thing for you. Um, and at the same time, it seems like you were kind of coming to terms with the fact that you were raised with like such progressive views was going to allow you to do something like positive and productive in the world. And you have this great quote, you said, songwriting is a unique opportunity to do that because it avails a more emotional vehicle for discussion. (laughs) Can you talk about the realization of using songwriting as a vehicle for expression? Yeah, that's, um, that's been kind of a long process for me, I think. You know, one of the people that really influenced me the most was Kelsey Walden, if you've heard of her. She was one of my Mm -hmm. best friends when I um, first moved to town, and I played a lot of music with her, and and she would write these incredible songs, and, you know, she was the one who introduced me to Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark and, you know, all these, like, amazing old songwriters and Dolly Parton's Bluegrass record, and I just remember, like, she always had something cool playing, and this was kind of the beginning of my listening to anything besides fiddle music and instrumental music. So I was kind of coming out of that, that instrumental brain and understanding this whole other world. And, uh, John Hartford, you know, entered my consciousness and a lot of more contemporary songwriters that were around us. So I think first I just had to understand songs and the role they played and their structure Mm and, and meaning and, when I got to a point where I was thinking about values and politics and, and those kind of things, I um, realized how amazing that, you know, that vehicle was. And it, I do think that in the writing of that, the Shame album, that was really me kind of finding the overlap of these different elements of my life, which had previously seemed so separate. Mm. Um, my kind of like academic school life with my Chicago friends and my political family and then my kind of musical life which had largely existed in much more conservative spaces because I was playing bluegrass in old time and I didn't really see how they interacted 
until I kind of started writing for that album. And then I was like, oh, like, I think this is who I'm going to be as an artist, you know, but that took a long time to figure that out. Cause there's so much just, I always think of it as like arts and crafts. Like you have to kind of learn the craft before you can do the art. And mm-hmm. I, there was so much crafting that I had to understand to feel like I had some kind of art to, to put out. And that's kind of when it clicked for me, I think. And then with this, with this new album, I have been thinking a lot about the effectiveness of, you know, empathy and change and, and, um, human understanding through songwriting. And for me, that's really trying to tell human stories that are universally relatable rather than trying to give a, a speech about right and wrong, you know? I've heard you talking about letting go of the notion of being technically perfect in your music and the power of imperfection, which thank you, Brene Brown. I also believe that. Yes. Um, What has been your relationship to perfection in terms of the fiddle and your songwriting? I think that I had, I spent many years trying to be perfect on the fiddle and because of the roundabout way that I arrived at songwriting, it did not carry the same kind of stress and inferiority complex that I had with the fiddle. If anybody has something that they've been doing since they were a kid and mm. like became their kind of like main identity as a person, I think there's just so much baggage that goes along with that. Um, Who's like, who was setting these expectations for you and the fiddle? Me. Like, absolutely me. I was like, yeah, well, but I think that's okay. (laughs) You know, that's just like being, once I fell in love with it, you know, I really wanted to be good at it. And when you're young, I think it's hard to understand what being good means in a nuanced way. It's like, well, you're either the best one at the jam or you're not, you know, and because you're only thinking of it and like who's playing the fastest and the coolest solo and knows the most licks and knows the most tunes and, you know, has the best groove or whatever, whatever it is that is on your brain at that moment. So I think I spent a long time being very stressed about not being good enough to be a professional fiddle player in Nashville or whether I would ever get to that point. And, and what ended up happening is I just took like a hard turn into songwriting and landed there and then kind of stopped worrying. Like I just, I honestly play and get called for way more fiddle stuff now, and I really don't care. I mean, I care, but I don't care if I'm the best fiddle player. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what I'm worried about. And I think that that comes across in the way I play the instrument, because it doesn't sound like I'm stressed out and trying to be something I'm not. I'm just playing Mm. the fiddle as I am, where I am, which is always when music sounds the best, you know, when you're not trying to play as a better version of yourself. You're just playing as yourself in that moment. Sounds like a lot of like being controlled by fear and anxiety. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, I think that is like trying to master an instrument. That's like the epitome of it. Yes. And, uh, but I never had that with songwriting. It's always been really joyful for me. I've never Mm. been stressed about it. And it's not because I think I'm like the best songwriter in the world. It's just because it's such a, I just don't feel like it's something you can compare, you know, like I'm never like, oh, these are the best songwriters. And, you know, cause it, that's, it's like, there's no measure for that. It's such a personal thing. It's like everyone's creating art that is really personal to them. And, um, yeah, so I, I, it's always been a total, like songwriting has always been a total, um, safe place for me which I'm grateful for, and I hope it never changes. Mm, me too. That sounds great. Yeah. I love that. I've said that a lot during this interview <laughs> after your answers. I'm enjoying it. Um, so I got to talk to, so for Folk Alley, I got to talk to Andrew Marlin. Oh, cool. Um, he did a guest DJ set um, when he released his solo records this year. Cool. That's um, awesome. And he like he's going to be on Basic Folk Watch House's new album and I'm so excited to talk to him because he's like so smart and great and like just the chillest coolest person um and he produced your solo album Shame yes um so 
all that to preface that like the themes on that album were very centered around like demanding space for yourself and for like women in general yeah. and like you were working with like an all white male cis crew yes. um, on the record and I'm sure they're like all just as lovely as Andrew um, yes. but you have said that there were like some songs that were hard to discuss with like all men and on your new record Cycles you worked with mostly women including Liv Halley of OPEP mm-hmm. who produced the record and so like now that you've gone through both situations um, mm-hmm. what was it like for you to work with all men versus working with mostly women in the studio? Yeah, it was a really interesting contrast. And yeah, I mean, again, I would preface this by saying that Andrew was an amazing producer for that record. And, you know, I wouldn't change anything, but it was weird to like, be like keep singing this song shame. And like, also, I mean, there was so many like very personal songs on that record. Uh, Take a Stand was really hard. It was just internal, you know, like I was scared to bring it up. What is the, just what's the background of that song? That's about an experience I had like with a much older kind of mentor figure. And I feel like it's something that took me a long time of reflecting on it to kind of get to a point where I was like, actually, I think this was kind of messed up. (laughs) And I had a lot of friends that, we're in really similar situations. It's like when you're, you know, in that gray area age, like 17, 18, 19, Mm -hmm. and it's like, are you a kid? Are you an adult? And, um, this, I saw this happen a lot in college and it, it's just like, once I finally kind of had the space from it where I was like, I think that like, this was kind of like not a healthy situation. And, you know, the song is always like, um, kind of a more exaggerated version of the situation because you're writing about the feelings, not the facts. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's a really intense song and like that one and shame, it was weird. Like I didn't want to talk about it with them. I didn't want to talk about what it was about. Whereas I think had I been with Liv or someone, I would have felt very comfortable just being like, well, you know what this is about, blah, 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 blah. And so it just was like more of an insular experience. Like I was, I felt like I was alone in that moment in the studio and I didn't feel unsupported. I just felt really awkward, basically. And um, I was also really new to like making records. So I didn't, in terms of like making a solo record where like the only records I'd made previous to that were 10 string symphony, which is like, it's already kind of determined what you're going to record because you've made the arrangements. It's just going to be the band. You know, it's a very different experience bringing songs to life in the studio when you have any option available to you in terms of like instrumentation, that's really like producing a record versus just like recording what you've already arranged. Mm -hmm. So that was a new experience for me. And, um, Musically, you know, the input and guidance that Andrew offered and and Josh was a big part of that recording process as well was incredible. And I'm so grateful for it. Uh, But I definitely was like with the new album, when the opportunity arose to work with Liv, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I don't I mean, I would never create a situation of all men anyway, again, because I feel like I know enough people now that. I don't need to do that. And why would you do that? But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like, isn't it like if, if you go to a show or something or you watch a video of like this like super strong feminist woman and she's like up on stage and it's all like white guys behind her. It's like kind of like a little bit of a disappointment. I find that really disappointing, too. And I I feel like it's changing quickly. Like I've mm. seen already um a number of my peers that have previously had all male and all white male bands start hiring women I feel like I've been I've been called for more side person jobs as a result um because Mm -hmm. people are kind of feeling like but I do find that frustrating especially if you have a festival lineup and they're like look we've got three females on the lineup and I'm like well that's still you know they have four white dudes in their band so you have actually now you know 50 musicians on stage and three of them are female <laughs> you know what I mean it's like, yeah literally three. <laughs> so that's something and I've actually 
gotten to produce two projects this year and it feels so cool to be able the one that calls the female drummer to come into the studio and calls the female but you know like I feel like having that being that a gatekeeper in that way is like the coolest thing ever so I try to be very mindful of that but you know we're all just trying our best we're all just trying our best like someone who's like constantly wanting to learn and grow and I want to know more about like what that looks like in practice especially when it comes to like getting outside of your comfort zone so like especially like in this past year white Americans have had a lot to reckon with like mm-hmm. when recognizing our privilege so like in your experience how have you responded to being uncomfortable when faced with that reckoning of like your own privilege ignorance misinformation so on and so forth yeah I mean I think probably similarly to most you know white Americans that want to not be part of the problem (laughs) like it's like it's always just trying to do something right and kind of messing up and having to be okay with that the fact that like you're not always gonna I think when you grow up in a privileged position which I feel like I did um you're used to kind of doing things correctly and being told that you're doing them correctly. It's like, good job, you did that well, you know? And I think when it comes to uh, racial injustice, you just have to get really comfortable with the fact that like, you're not always gonna get a high five and you're not always gonna do it right. Like that's, and that's just part of it, so. Mm. I would also add that like, you're not always gonna do it right and like some people are not gonna be okay with that, that that you've messed up. I I think that it can get a little extreme in terms of like being mad at people when they're clearly just like trying. And like, I think it's totally fine to to point out if you think it's like doing more harm than good. But I also think that there needs to be room for people to try and mess up and try as long as they're willing Mm -hmm. to, to redirect it. But um, yeah, like, so for me, I've, I write this monthly column for no depression and during um, July last summer when like the Black Lives Matter movement was kind of um, paramount in the public consciousness, I was like, well, I feel like I should kind of like pass this platform over because the whole like idea right now is like, we don't need to be like hearing from more white people about this. So I reached out to a bunch of folk musicians that were like people of color and asked anybody if they wanted to like contribute and it was like this whole thing of like well some people want to say something some people feel like they're sick of being asked to say something some people feel like they don't want to do that work you know like it's it's a whole range Mm -hmm. because like obviously like just because all these people are people of color doesn't mean that they have the same opinion or reaction or idea about the situation and so I think it was and it was such a charged time um everyone was like so stressed out on so many levels and experiencing this like terrible moment in history, but also like a kind of a hopeful moment that it was really uncomfortable. I mean, it was very uncomfortable because I was like definitely getting a lot of pushback. Like people were like, well, you know, are we getting paid for this? And, and it was like, I wasn't allowed to pay them because of like journalistic things about like paying sources. Like there was all this thing, all these kind of like hoops and, So that was my experience with it. And I felt like, you know, it definitely was, it was totally fine. I mean, it's like, that's just part of it. But I, I was uncomfortable. And I think that's just what you have to do. Like you have to get uncomfortable. You said, I feel like being an effective activist is very different in 2021 than in 2017. It's where you're saying it's not about making the point. It's about making the point in a way that's humanizing. So can you talk a little bit more about how you came to this conclusion and how have you practiced this approach in real life? And it also kind of reminds me um, of how Amy Ray approaches like adversity Mm. against her and her family in her small uh, town in North Georgia of just being like, you can't just like write people off and Mm -hmm. yell at people all the time. I don't know if you're familiar with like how she deals with being gay and... 
I'm familiar with Amy Ray, but I, I haven't heard the specifics about her like small town life. And that's really interesting. I think, yeah, I, I think this has been like over the past few years, kind of a learning curve for me. And I do think that there was a lot of important things that needed to be said in 2016, 2017, and a lot of things that needed to get out there so that we could have these conversations, these difficult conversations. And um, everything escalated so much. And there's been like so much yelling and screaming. And at a point, at a certain point, I feel like the opinions are now out there. And like people know what the kind of various takes on an issue are. Not to say that like you shouldn't continue to discuss important issues. But for me, the the opinions that I have, I don't feel like are anything that people haven't heard before. If I had, you know, groundbreaking opinions, then maybe I would feel more inclined to like yell about them. But um, (laughs) when I released Shame, like I do think that that was something that people weren't really talking about, especially in the folk music scene. But now Mm -hmm. people are talking about everything, you know, like we've had a lot of really important conversations, which is great. And I am here for it. But as we've experienced like such a polarization and such an animosity, you know, that we've literally, I mean, I, in my short life have not experienced before in this country, the intensity of the divide, you kind of have to wonder like what is helpful and what is harmful at a certain point. And to me, like political conversations on the internet are largely harmful and not really helpful. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of shifted my idea about like what is a helpful form of communication and songs and art to me are always going to be like the best way to get something across without shutting someone down you know if if it's Mm -hmm. done if it's done well it's hard it is hard but it's like that's the work that's the exciting thing that's why you're an artist you know that's the cool part i want to talk about how great live is and we'll give us some space favorite subject (laughs) olivia hallie the front woman of opep i went to um miles of music camp the year that she and peppy were there awesome like i was like there's not a more fun person on this planet Liv is just such a special person. You actually went to Melbourne to mm-hmm. record with Liv for the album Cycles. Um, you wanted to, like, get into her scene. You said, like, I have this kind of theory that if you want a specific sound, you have to go to the place, use the studio, use the person, use the gear, get the vibe. What did you like about the vibe in Melbourne, and how was it, like, different than than what you expected? Well... It was largely what I expected. I mean, in some ways it was like the most quintessential Melbourne, you know, where we were recording like a a converted warehouse space with like really cool grungy artwork everywhere. And then the really awesome coffee shop down the road, you know, it was like everything that you'd expect. Um, I think the difference in mindset uh, is pretty intense. Like I think here in Nashville, for example, if I'm working on a track and I want and I'm having a specific idea about a sound or an instrument, instrument, there's like 20 people that I can call that are masters of that instrument or that sound, and they'll come in and play it. And you, you have everything at your fingertips, basically. All options are on the table. And working in Melbourne, it was like me, Liv, and Gormy in the studio, which he's, he was an engineer, and... If Liv or I had an idea, it was like we were going to go in and do it. So, you know, if she wanted to hear keys on something, she went in and played the piano. And, like, if I wanted weird sounds, like, I had to go in there and make those sounds with my fiddle. And um, Cy came with me, who um, has been playing guitar with me for a long time. And so we did have him for a couple days, you know, playing guitars. But everything else was largely just, like, more experimental and more uh, risky and more of, just us coming up with it. And I love that because I think that made it a little more stripped down, a little more sparse, a little more direct and a little more intense, which I like, like I'm an intense person. I like intense music and grungy, you know, like, cause we're, we're just doing it ourselves and that's the sound that we're going to get. So, um, I want to ask about a few songs on cycles, um, including the title track, which I don't know if I can Describe without my eyes starting to sweat profusely. Oh, um, that's so it is nice. a 
It's a pretty tough song. Um, mm-hmm. Your sister-in-law had a miscarriage at five months pregnant, and you wrote the song with Liv to honor the strength that is passed down from woman to woman in the face of childbirth. Even not knowing what it's about, it's like such a great listen. And then I read your um, track notes on it and was like, what the fuck? What, what a, <laughs> how do you even approach a song oh. like that? So I, I guess like I just like don't have any like particular question, but like how did you write that song? Well, that song was the catalyst for working with Liv because we wrote that song before... I had asked her if she wanted to do the whole album with me. And I think it was part of the reason why I was so uh, excited about putting together a female team, because I had that, I had that story, you know, in me and I, I was thinking about it a lot and I wanted to write about it that day for whatever reason, like that, that's what was on my mind. And um, when I sat down with Liv and we were talking about it, like it just was so easy to talk about that subject and and you know she also has a sister that she's really close with and like I just felt like there was um such a fundamental understanding of what I was like wrestling with and that kind of is it's all part of the conversation we had previously about like assembling a team that has different perspectives and like not just having all men and like one female front person if that's if that's you if you're the front person but that song, you know, happened really uh, not easily time-wise, but easily inspiration-wise. Like it was, it was easy to write with her. We spent hours on it, but it was like good flowing hours, mm-hmm. and um, and we were both really in love with it as we were writing it. And I like frantically asked if she could get in the studio with me to make a demo with it, like the next day. And it was the night before she was leaving for. Um, Back, how it happened back to Melbourne and yeah so we have a really cool demo of that song that's just us and she's playing the drums and she got food poisoning and like threw up in a bucket and then did some more vocal take it it was oh, like it was very like that's something that could only happen to live <laughs> I know she's she's the coolest the song um no good time for dying another mm-hmm. incredible song about um your grandmother and who has died yeah but she, um it's about her death, and this song hit me particularly because um, my partner is a geriatric physician, so she's oh, wow. working in in this world all the time. Wow. And I also have a very good friend who is working on a podcast uh, called "A Lovely Death," um, that interviews like end of end of life care folks. Can you talk about your grandmother's life and and death, and maybe how her death may have changed your relationship to end of life? Yeah. Um, my grandmother was a very zany character. Uh, I was lucky that she was around a lot cause she lived, it's like three blocks from where I grew up and she, you know, didn't, she didn't have an easy go of it. Like she had a very wild life and, um, she was not an easy person. She's a very difficult person. And, um, she had a lot of sadness in her life and she was one of those people that just kind of was always pushing on to the next thing and in, in, maybe in an effort to not pay attention to what was happening in the present or what was like in the past. I think she was um, definitely always ready for the next adventure. She traveled a lot and she had um, all kinds of like international boyfriends and affairs and um, <laughs> dramas when when she was probably 72 or something she asked me to make her in an e-harmony profile and she ended up meeting this guy in Guatemala and like going on some kind of romantic journey like she was just not your typical grandma one could say and she was very she could be really rude really mean like really intrusive like she had a lot of problems but I like as a grand you know you for my dad Obviously, he loves her, but, like, he had a very difficult childhood. And for me, though, it was just, like, all fun and games because I had this, like, stable family, and she was just, like, the wild card that I got to enjoy. Mm. So that was kind of a special relationship, and I think that we have a lot in common. You know, like, I got maybe got a lot of her, probably got some of her mental illness and also, like, her adventurous spirit and, you know, just, like, there's a lot, I think, that we that we shared in... Um, so I think that was part of why it was really hard to watch her kind of 
like lose her independence because that was really what she held on to. She didn't have like a beautiful, perfect, stable life to look back on. Like if she couldn't look forward, she just got sad. And that was hard, like hard to watch. And um, I don't think that was a life that she ever wanted. I mean, I think her goal was always just to like never be in care or have that intense illness. And it was large. I mean, it really was a short time in the scheme of things, but it was a very sad thing to watch. And it kind of, for me, it was definitely like a wake up call of how much we avoid thinking about this and how much as a society, we just kind of hide this phase of life mm-hmm. away and try to pretend it doesn't exist and um, try to pretend that everyone kind of dies in their sleep in a happy way. And it's just not true at all, mm. which is lame. I, you know, I wish it was true. It's not something I had thought about a lot prior to that experience, but it kind of forced me to pay attention a little more. It's a wild song. I like on your uh, record release day, I was walking around the neighborhood and that song came on and I just like my diet to like, I lost my my jaw fell on the floor oh. and since I was outside it was hard to find it but I like immediately sent it to like a bunch of people like mm-hmm. it, I've never heard a song like that before it's really really I'm, lovely I'm really glad that you know it meant something to you and a number of people have reached out about that song so it's like I know it's like a difficult one but I'm glad that it can at least make people feel not alone in their experience or you I have know, to um, <laughs> empty out my eyes okay. sorry oh Rachel, just stop writing these goddamn songs that... Whew. Okay, um, one more thing and then we can stop crying. Um, this is called The Lightning Round. Oh, okay. Fun. Ready. Set. Okay. You ready? Okay. I'm always afraid I'm going to say something embarrassing. Okay. Oh, well, that's the, that's the hope. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, go for it. What is the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, There's Your Trouble by the Dixie Chicks. Ooh, good one. Maybe? Uh, that could be a lot. What's your karaoke song? Reba Fancy. Wow. Okay. These are home runs. Um, <laughs> dogs or cats or something else? Definitely dogs. What is your coffee order? Uh, cappuccino. First celebrity crush? Shane West. Who is that? Do you remember that really schmaltzy movie, A Walk to Remember? Oh, he's the boy. <laughs> I didn't know there was a boy in that movie. I only saw Mandy Moore. Sorry. <laughs> um, that is an amazing reply. There's a boy. <laughs> Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Uh, Brittany Haas. First album you bought with your own money? Okay, very embarrassing. Faith Hill, breathe. <laughs> Ooh, uh, that's This is so fancy. weird and not indicative, but that's fine. <laughs> First concert? Nickel Creek. Well, there we go. Redemption. Very on brand. <laughs> yes. Last book you read? I just read, um, this This is very embarrassing, but this book is called Red, White, and Royal Blue. And it is like a gay romance between the like first son of the U.S. and the Prince of England. And it's like the most amazing version of the world that you could imagine. Oh Highly my God. recommend. That sounds, like, that sounds like a bedtime story that I would like ask my brother to tell me. It kind of, it's kind of like, when a, I was a little it's kid. like, it's yeah. like a revisionist history of the 2016 election because it's like the, there's a female president and her son, like, it's ridiculous, but honestly, I'm like emotional about it because it made me feel so many things. What anyway, is it called again? It's called Red, Red White, White, Red, White, and Royal Blue. It's like, that is embarrassing. I wish I could say it was like high shelf literature, but I also feel like this book deserves to not be written off because it's very good. <laughs> okay, a couple more. Flying or invisibility? Um, uh, invisibility, because I kind of hate flying. Because what? I don't really enjoy flying. I mean, oh. in a plane. So I don't imagine that would... Maybe that okay. would have been... We will accept that answer. <laughs> Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh, oh my God, Star Trek. I have been so... I've been forced to watch so much Star. So I kind of hate all of it. But Star Trek, I prefer to Star Wars. Okay, here's the last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Uh, the place that I wrote the song Wyoming Wildflowers uh, is outside of Pinedale, Wyoming. It's probably the most beautiful place I've ever been. Hmm, nice. Okay, that's it. Rachel, thank All you right. so much. 
Thank you. This was a very surprising and amazing conversation. Thank you for having me. It's a real me. whopper, huh? It was a whopper, yes. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for spending so much time and oh, congratulations on the new record. I hope it wins every award. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, it was my pleasure and thanks for listening and caring and investigating so deeply. Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I am your host, Cindy Howes. Thank you so much for checking out the episode. If you liked what you hear, please tell a friend. Uh, you can go to tell them to go wherever they get podcasts, or you can find it at my website, basicfolk.com. And we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. <laughs>